All right, good evening everyone. How are you? You have braved it through the cold weather tonight. I'm happy for you to be here and uh, you know, you can always listen to these, thing, to these things online, but it's something else being actually present in the room, amen? When the Holy Spirit works and when we open up the Word of God. Um, though I must say I'm very thankful for the opportunity for these messages to go online. And uh, so just to remind you, what's the website? Blueprint.co. So take a look at that. Um, as uh, John already mentioned, the presentations of this series will be available there as well as the presentations of Dwayne Lemon, uh, for those of you that were with us for the health series. And there's actually another series there that I would also like to mention. Uh, Pastor Samuel uh, did a series last fall. Maybe some of you attended that, the Blueprint series. How many of you were there? Okay, a couple of you. A very good series, so you can also share that material with others and go over that. Very uh, deep studies in prophecy based around the sanctuary message. And the sanctuary has so much to to tell us. So um, take a look at that as well. Uh, good resources. I keep bumping into people uh, in different places where I go, and, they, and they'll say, yeah, I've seen you on Amazing Discoveries TV, or I've heard you on Audioverse, and these are kind of uh, resource websites uh, that basically get the message out there, and uh, it's really a blessing to know that uh, these messages are reaching people all over the world. Uh, another website that I can just add is um, our uh, ministry website, which is livingwater.no. Uh, and O stands for Norway, but even though you go to that website, there's a lot of English material, so don't be afraid, it's not going to be all in Norwegian. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you get in there, you'll see, you'll come right onto the homepage that will be in English. And there's a lot of audio messages there, video messages, Bible studies, and other resources. So you can take a look at that as well. And spread this information with others around you, so that the Word of God can spread, amen? So um, let's get into our presentation for this evening. We are going to look at the very important question, which is really a 6,000-year-old question, and that is, what happens when a person dies? What happens when a person dies? And uh, uh, we're going to allow the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures to unmask some of the lies of the enemy that have crept in and that are taking a hold of many people in this world today and have also found their inroads into Christianity. And we want to allow the Bible to be our authority tonight as we look at this question, what happens when a person dies? So we're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to be with us, and then we're going to go on this journey together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can be gathered here. Thank you that we have your word among us, that we can open it and study it and Lord, that there is a blessing in it for each one of us. And so we pray for your guidance. We pray for your spirit to make the topic tonight very clear. Uh, Lord, I don't believe that um, human eloquence or my words can really make the impression that needs to be made in regards to this uh, important question and this important topic. And so I do need your help. I'm very aware of that. And I pray that your spirit will be here and that your spirit will be our instructor and guide. For I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, let's get going here. We're going to start with um, looking at some of the claims of spiritism. Now, when we're talking about the question of death and what happens when a person dies, um, you will notice that there's a lot of interest around this question in our world today. If there is something on the rise in our society and in our culture, it is spiritism, the fascination of the supernatural. Uh, what happens when a person dies is just one of those questions that links into this all-over absorbing theme of, of there being something more. Now, spiritism um, is really founded upon uh, two basic pillars or two basic uh, foundation or principles, you could say. Um, these are the foundations of spiritism. Number one, that there is conscious life, that conscious life exists after death, or this is what we refer to as natural immortality. In other words, that the body, that in us there is something that is immortal and that cannot die. And so uh, when a person dies, they don't really die, but they actually continue to exist. And we'll talk more about that and we'll unpack uh, how, uh, how that, or this, this worldview. Um, then secondly, this principle, this foundation of spiritism, the dead 
can communicate with the living. So not only is there conscious life after death, according to spiritism, but also, secondly, the dead, those that have passed away, can actually communicate with those that are living with, with, with us. So these are the two fundamental principles of spiritism. Now, this is taken from um, Arthur Hill, which is a spiritist, and he writes in this book, he says, the fundamental principle of spiritism is that human beings survive bodily death, and that occasionally, under conditions not yet fully understood, we can communicate with those who have gone before. So you see very clearly the two principles in this quotation from this spiritist. Okay? Now, here's another um, quotation from a spiritist by the name of Sir Oliver Lodge, and he says the following. There is no death in the graveyard. I have frequent talks with the dead. I cannot doubt that people live after death, for I frequently talk with them. This is not some kind of unsure language. They're very sure on what they believe and where they stand on this issue of what happens when a person dies. Here another one, also taken from a spiritist, and he says, and this is kind of an interesting one where we really kind of segue into what the Bible teaches on this, because he says the following, spiritism says that the dead know more than the living. And then he quotes the Bible verse found in the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 4, where the serpent speaks to the woman. And uh, he says, and the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. But listen to how he continues here in this quote. He says, in this, as in many other Bible passages, the devil told the truth and the Lord is in error. So it's interesting to note right away here, as we kind of lay the foundation here, as we build the platform for our presentation this evening, we see very clearly that from the side of the spiritist or, or from the side of this, this uh, um, resurgence of spiritism, there are two very found foundational principles, and that is that the dead are not really dead and that we can actually communicate with them. And they claim that the Lord is an error and the devil really told the truth when he said, you shall not die. Okay? Now, interesting, that is, of course, very prevalent in modern media today. As you look at some of the books and movies that have been released over the last decade, you will find that a lot of the content of those top-selling books and top-selling movies have their roots in this spiritualistic idea, these spiritualistic ideas, especially when it comes to the idea of what happens when a person dies. They don't really die. They continue to live. There's, there's this fascination in the afterlife. Uh, you find that, for example, very strongly in the books of Harry Potter, which have literally sold in the millions. Uh, one, of the, one of the best-selling books um, in, in, in the entire history um, of, of humanity. Uh, what is good to note, though, that this is still the best-selling book. Can you say amen? But this is getting close. I mean, this is, this, these have literally sold in the millions, and young people are just, you know, they're, they're just absorbed in this material um, that really teaches that, you know, death, when a person dies, they don't really die. It just all continues, and it all goes on, and, and a lot of witchcraft and, and magic and, and all these kinds of things you'll find in the modern media today. Of course, other movie, um, movies like Twilight and others that have just literally... Um, Basically, it's like a tsunami that is just uh, hitting the world um, in these topics of the supernatural. Now, um, what does then the Bible actually teach regarding spiritism or the contact with the dead or, mag or this white, this, whether, you know, whether you call it you know, magic or white magic as they call it? What does actually the scripture teach about engaging in these kinds of activities? Well, um, let's go to a text in the book of Deuteronomy. And um, chapter 18, verse 10 to 12, and these words were given by God uh, through Moses to the people, and these words were actually given just prior to them um, obtaining or possessing the promised land of Canaan. So just imagine the people have been in the wilderness for 40 years, they're going to go into the promised land, but in the promised land there are different cultures and different nations, and there are different practices amongst those people, and God is warning them and preparing them and doesn't want them to engage in the things that the nations 
are engaged in there in Canaan. And so he gives the following warning, and it's quite a strong warning that you can find in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. And listen to what the Bible says. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Now, you you might think, like, what does that mean? Well, there were practices amongst the Canaanites and basically the people of the land, the heathen nations, and they would actually sacrifice their children to their gods, like the god of Moloch and other gods, and they would cause their children to, to go through the fire. And if the, if, if the fire would consume them, then they considered that a sacrifice to their gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And so God is saying, I don't want you to be engaged in those things. I don't want you to follow in those things. And then, and then the Lord goes on to speak here through Moses and says, gives basically a list of things that God's people, his peculiar special people, are not to be engaged in. And listen to these things that are listed here. Uh, don't, don't cause your son or daughter to pass through the fire. Or one who practices witchcraft, so stay away from witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or, listen to this last part here, or one who calls up the dead, or one who calls up the dead. So the Bible is very clear in its teaching on spiritualistic matters. The Bible is saying, stay away from it. This is not something that the people of God should be engaged in. Now, if it was not something for the people of God to be engaged in thousands of years ago, then I think it's reasonable to say that it's not something that God wants us to be involved in today. What do you say? Now, uh, in order to further, though, um, make that statement, because you might think, well, that's maybe kind of a jump, How do we know that it's still dangerous today? Well, we're going to do a little Bible study tonight, and I hope that's okay. We're going to go to some scriptures, some powerful scriptures in the Word of God to show what exactly happens when a person dies. And it is so important that we understand this from the scripture because if we don't understand this teaching clearly from the scripture, the enemy, the devil, Satan, which is a real being as we have understood and learned in this seminar, is going to make his way into our lives, is going to make its way into the church through the very deceptions of spiritism and the very question of what happens when a person dies. So let us go to Scripture, and a very good place to start is right there in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, because if you want to understand what happens when a person dies, you must first understand what happens when a person is created, because creation is death in reverse, and so to understand what happens at death, we must understand what happens at creation. Does that make sense? So what happened when the first human being, according to Scripture, was created? And I love the language here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And listen to what it says. Remember, God has created everything by the word of his mouth. He's created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals of the land. He's created the stars and he knows them by name. He's created the planets. He's created everything and then he creates the crownship of his creation, which is, human be- which is the human being. And you can read about the creation of the first human being in chapter 2 and verse 7. And the beautiful thing about chapter 2 and verse 7 is when it tells us about the creation of mankind, it was not enough for, man- for God to merely speak man into existence. But God actually comes down and he creates man from the dust of the earth and breathes his own breath, and man becomes a living soul. Let's let's read it here, Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In other words, the human being, the first created human being, was made up of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. Okay? The dust of the earth and the breath of God, which is, by the way, an incredible picture when you think about it because God didn't speak man into existence, but he actually created man, which is just, uh, it just shows you how close God really is and how much he wants to be involved with our lives. From the very beginning, there was something special about the creation of 
the human being. Now, with that in mind, if that's what Genesis teaches, that, that um, the first human being was created by the breath of God and by the dust of the earth, then what happens when a person dies? Take notice of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. The Bible says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, it's interesting. At creation, we see the breath of God and the dust of the earth come together to create the first human being. And in Ecclesiastes, when it describes death, it actually describes the separation of those two elements, the separations of the breath of God and the body which returns to dust. Now, the breath of God, which we, t which we read about in Genesis, and the spirit that it talks about here in Ecclesiastes is the same word. It's the Hebrew word um, ruach, which means breath. And so spirit or breath are really synonymous here. Um, and uh, this is important for us to understand because what is it really that is returning to God? It is the breath that God originally gave. It's basically, we could call it the life force. Because without God, there is really no life, and God gives us his life. It's a gift from him, and so that's the breath or the spirit. And at death, this returns unto God. In the Greek language, the word spirit is pneuma, which also means breath. And think about it. When a child is born, the first thing that that child must do is breathe. And the last thing that a person does before they die, they breathe their last breath, right? So breath is so connected to life that in the scriptures, the word for spirit, which really gives life, is the word breath. Because without breathing, you can't live. I mean, you can go a certain number of days without food, and you can go a certain amount of days without water, and you can go a certain amount of days, you know, um, without these things that you need, whether it's, you know, food or water or, 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 or other things. But when it comes to breath, you can't very, very, go very long without breath. Don't try it. Because going without breath is just a matter of, of minutes, basically. Uh, some people have trained, you know, to, to, to be able to go without breath for maybe a couple of minutes. But, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get very far without breath. It's connected so much to life. Think of this illustration. If you have a light bulb, the light bulb only is going to give light when you have the source of electricity, Right? It's just like you have the body, and the body, there's a life force, there's that breath, but when that breath is gone, that life force is gone, when the electricity is gone, the light goes out. And the body returns to what it was made from, it returns into the dust, to the dust of the earth. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6 give us a little bit more um, of an idea of what then happens when a person dies because that spirit or that breath that returns to God, the question, the big question really is, is that any conscious life form? I mean, the body returns to the earth, uh, you know, that that's just returns to dust, but that breath or that spirit that returns to God, is that some kind of a ghost that is now, you know, uh, going around in heaven or going around in hell or going around on this earth? Or, or well, what is that? We must understand, what is that breath or spirit? Is there any consciousness, that's the big question, when a person dies? Do they continue to think? Do they continue to, to have emotions and feelings? Well, let's see what the Bible teaches on this. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. According to the words of Scripture... When a person dies, there is no longer love. There's no longer hatred. There's no longer the characters or the, the feelings and the emotions that we have when we are right here, right now, when we are alive in this body. Okay? Now, take notice what Psalms 146 and verse 4 says. His spirit departs, which is, again, that same word, the breath departs, the breath goes back to God. He returns to the earth, the body becomes dust, and listen to what it says next, second part of the verse. In that very day, his what? His plans perish. 
So there's not some kind of like unfulfilled, you know how you hear these, you know, these movies about uh, there's still some purpose and this person is like kind of haunting this place because he has some business to do and he's not yet finished with that business. My friends, that's a lie of the devil because the scriptures make it very clear that when a person dies, his plans what? Perish. There is no longer love. There is no longer hatred. These feelings are gone. Now take notice that the Bible equates death to sleep more than 70 times. This is quite fascinating. So in other words, when the Bible talks about death more than 70 times in Scripture, it is likening death unto sleep. So if we're going to understand what happens when a person dies, we must think about this very clear illustration that we find more than 70 times in the Word of God, and that is sleeping. Now, what happens when a person sleeps, right? Now, take notice of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, where Paul the Apostle, under the inspiration of God, gives a very hopeful message to the believers in Thessalonica. And when he writes this letter to them, he is using the analogy of sleep connected with what happens when a person dies. And I love this passage. It's one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible because it also gives us hope Concerning, um, uh, concerning this question of death, and it shows us very clearly that death is not the last thing for the Christian. If we believe in Jesus, there is a hope, and Paul talks about this hope as the resurrection, the, um, the, the, the life coming back. Uh, and Well, let me read it. Let, let, let's allow Paul to put it in his words here. Listen to this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, right away we're seeing here that Paul is obviously not talking about a sleep when it comes to taking a nap, right? He's not talking about a person that is taking a nap in the afternoon, and he says, because you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't have any, any sorrow for that. So what he's talking about clearly here is the sleep of death. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, there are others that don't have the hope of the resurrection. And when their beloved, uh, pers- when their beloved one dies, it seems the end of the world. But Paul says, you have a hope. Now, take notice of the hope that he describes here. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Paul is saying, you know what? Don't be sorrowful when a person dies, because if they believed in Jesus, that is not the end. They are merely sleeping. And we know that when a person goes to sleep, we know that at one moment they're going to awaken. And that is how it is with death. Death is merely like a sleep, Paul says, because one day they're going to awaken and he tells us exactly when that time comes. According to this passage, when is it that people are going to wake up? It's when Jesus returns, right? It says when the trumpet sound and Christ appears. And the, the picture that he gives here is clearly the picture of the second coming of Christ. And he tells us that there are going to be two groups when Jesus returns. They're going to be those that are alive when he returns, that have never tasted death. And they're going to be those that are going to be resurrected, right? And he tells us in this passage that the resurrection will happen first, First, those that are, that are died in Christ will rise. And then he says, together with those that are alive, they will meet the Lord in the air. So can you imagine Jesus coming on the skies? 
Can you imagine Jesus Christ with all his angels in glory and power and beauty? And you see him there, and then the, the earth starts to shake, and there's this massive, massive resurrection of people that have put their trust and hope in Jesus. And maybe you're living at that day. Maybe you will never taste death. Maybe you will see him come in the skies. But if not, then you will experience coming out of that grave if you've put your trust in Christ. And then together, all of us that have put our faith in Christ Jesus will meet the Lord in the air. Isn't that a powerful text? Isn't that a powerful promise of Scripture that there is a hope, there is something beautiful to look forward to as a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is the resurrection day when Christ returns upon the clouds of glory. This is going to be a, a, a beautiful, amazing, and climaxing moment in the course of human history. This is when death will be swallowed up into victory. This is when the sting of death will be removed forever for us to experience oneness, face-to-face communion with our Savior and our Lord. Now, the big question that comes to my mind and must come to all of our minds is very simply this question. Is the soul immortal or is there a resurrection? Because if you, if you think for a moment about this question, it's really an either-or question. You cannot have both. In other words, if the soul is immortal, as Spiritism teaches and many religions teach today, and which is also an idea that has crept into Christianity to a large degree, if you believe that the soul is immortal, in other words, that death is not really death, but you continue to exist and you live forever and ever, if that is true, then there is no need of a resurrection, right? Why would you have a resurrection if people immediately go to heaven and they're already there? Why would they suddenly have to go back into this earth to be resurrected, right? So, Either the soul is mortal and there's a resurrection, or the soul is immortal and there is no resurrection. It's really an either-or question. And I believe that based on the evidence of Scripture, and we're not finished yet with our Bible study, we're going to go to a couple of more texts, quite a number of texts to show this. I believe the Scriptures clearly teach that the soul is mortal, but that there is a resurrection. And the resurrection is the moment that we receive as a gift immortality from God himself. But we at this point do not have immortality. We are mortal beings. Now, take notice that 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, make it very clear. The Bible says, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, and listen to what it says about Jesus, the lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Now, he has immortality. You and I do not have immortality. If we had immortality, we would be God. You see, Christ, who is one with the Father, who is God, has immortality. We receive immortality as a gift, and that gift, according to Scripture, is received at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we inherently have at this point. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus alone has immortality. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this text connects very well with the text that we already read in 1 Thessalonians 4. So I hope that you have the text, the passage in mind in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. I don't, you want, to, I don't want you to sorrow as others do. The Lord is coming. He's coming with a shout. He's coming with his archangel. He's coming with the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise, and together with those that are alive, will meet the Lord in the air and comfort one another with these words. Right? That's, that's the text in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now let's connect that with 1 Corinthians 15 and we'll find out exactly when death is swallowed up in victory, when immortality puts when mortality puts on immortality. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And again, here it's talking about not the sleep of taking a nap, but the sleep of death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall what? What shall we be? Changed. Now, how would that change happen? Look at this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, this change is not going to take years. It's not going to take days. It's not going to take months. It's not going to take... It's going to happen like that, like the snip of a finger, like the twinkling of an eye. 
then everything will be changed. Look at what it says. When is this change going to happen? At the last trumpet. Now, in the text in Thessalonians chapter 4, it told us when that trumpet would sound. The trumpet would sound when Christ would return. Amen? So the trumpet sounds when Jesus returns, and that's when this change happens. Look at what it says. For the trumpet will, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. We read about that in the other text incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on what? Immortality. Now, if you must put on immortality, do you have immortality right now? No. You put on immortality. You are mortal, but you put on immortality. And when is that going to happen? When the trumpet sounds. When is the trumpet going to sound? When Christ returns. Does this make sense? Amen? All right, now look at what it says here. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, my friends, I look forward to that day. Don't you? I look forward to that day when death will be swallowed up in victory when Jesus comes. And in a twinkling of an eye, that back pain is gone. Amen? In a twinkling of an eye, you no longer, we're no longer going to hear about cancer. Amen. In a twinkling of an eye, everyone is going to be healed and there will be, the, we'll have, you know, immortal bodies. Now we have mortal bodies. Now we are sick and tired all the time. I have people, they say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But one day you will no longer be sick and tired of being sick and tired because if you put your faith in Jesus, you will receive the gift of immortality and in a twinkling of an eye, you'll be changed. Amen. You will be changed. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. And that will happen, my friends, according to Scripture, when Jesus Christ returns in glory, when he comes back the second time, when the trumpet sounds. Now, um, Bible writers from the Old Testament to the New Testament were very, very consistent in their understanding of this theme of what happens when a person dies. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 to 8 here Paul is writing a letter to a beloved co-laborer in the gospel work, a young man by the name of Timothy. This was not long before his martyr death in Rome. As a matter of fact, he was already a captive in Rome, and he's writing this letter to young Timothy. He's, in a sense, passing the baton to his young co-laborer. And 2 Timothy, in many ways, is, regards, is regarded as kind of the legacy of Paul to his um, young co-worker. And he's reviewing his life, and he says the following. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have what? Loved his appearing. Now think about that for a moment. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, I look, I, I look back on my life, and I've kept the faith. Like, he has confidence that he's walked in obedience to the Lord. And he says, I look forward to the day of reward. And then, as he describes that day, he says that the righteous judge will, will give the reward on that day. And he says, not to me only, but also to all who have loved what? His appearing. Loved the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, Paul is now, right now, sleeping in the grave. There's no conscious spirit floating around. He's sleeping in the grave, and he is waiting for that day when Christ will come back, and the trumpet will sound, and the graves will open, and Paul will rise up from the grave, and together with all of us, we will love the appearing of Jesus. Amen? We will love his appearing, and the righteous judge will give on that day what is, he will give to Paul right? The, 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 the uh, reward of eternal life, and he'll give to you and to me the reward of eternal life if we have put our faith in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful promise. Now, take a look at this text in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter is preaching this, this, this sermon on the day of Pentecost, the great sermon that caused 3,000 people um, to be baptized. And he's preaching with great power. And in the midst of this sermon that you can read in Acts chapter 2, he reviews the life of the patriarch David, which was one of the kings of Israel. And he says the following regarding David. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead 
and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And then he goes on to say in verse 34, for David did what? Not ascend into the heavens. Now, that's important words. David did not ascend into the heavens. Now, the popular belief in Christianity today is that when a person dies, where do they go? They go to straight to heaven or they go straight to hell. So this idea of the immortal soul continuing to exist in heaven is not something we find in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Scripture teaches that David is not in heaven. Now, think about David. Now, David certainly did some things that, you know, would embarrass most of us, but David was also a man, according to Scripture, after God's own heart. He repented, and God used him in a powerful way. He was a man after God's own heart. The Lord loved David. David loved the Lord. And yet, the Scriptures tell us that he is not in heaven today. He didn't ascend into the heavens. My friends, he is like Paul, like Timothy, like all the Bible writers. They are resting in the grave. They are sleeping, awaiting the great day when Christ will come and the trumpet will sound. Now, with that in mind, I want to take you to a fascinating story that sheds more light on this topic. And this story is found in the book of John, the fourth gospel book, and chapter 11. And I'm going to kind of give you a, 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 a synopsis of the story here. Basically, Jesus had a very, very dear friend by the name of Lazarus. And Lazarus became very sick. And Lazarus sent a messenger to Jesus, or the family members of Lazarus sent a messenger to Jesus, saying to Jesus, come quickly, because Lazarus, your friend, is about to die. Now, the disciples, they are ready to go, and yet Jesus kind of lingers a little bit, doesn't go immediately to his friend Lazarus, and Lazarus ends up dying. He passes away. He is laid in the tomb, and actually, he has already been in the tomb for four days before Jesus makes his way and comes to the family. Now, um, the disciples are kind of like wondering what is all going on, and uh, Jesus says to the disciples, before they arrive at the home of Lazarus, he says to his disciples, and you can read this in John chapter 11, he says, Lazarus sleeps. Lazarus what? Sleeps. And the disciples say, well, if he sleeps, he will be okay. Because they are thinking of the sleep of taking a nap. So, oh, he's sleeping. Well, that's usually a good thing to do when you're sick because that helps to get the body better. It gives the body a rest. But then Jesus, when the disciples say, well, if he sleeps, he'll be okay, Jesus responds. You can read this in John 11. And he says, Lazarus is dead. So he states it plainly. He's, in other words, likening sleep unto death. And so, but he then says, but let's go, let's go, because he was going to work out a beautiful, incredible miracle. He was going to raise Lazarus from the grave. And so they go to Lazarus, the home of Lazarus, and the sister of Lazarus meets Jesus, and she says the following words to him in John chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. And this is amazing. Listen to what she says. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again. When? In the resurrection. When? At the last day. Now, you see, Martha was a follower of Jesus. She had listened to the very teachings of Christ, and she knew that Lazarus was going to rise again. She had the hope of the resurrection, and when was that going to happen? At the last day, as we have also seen based on many other texts in Scripture. Now, Jesus here was going to perform a special miracle. In other words, Jesus was going to, rise, was going to raise Lazarus, not at the last day, well, also at the last day, but also right there and then. He was going to perform a very special miracle to testify of the fact that he is indeed able and capable of raising the dead. And so um, uh, uh, we're going to go to that in a moment, but look at, look at another text here in John chapter 6 where Jesus basically states that he will raise up his followers in the last days. John chapter 6 verse 39 and 40, this is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose how much? Nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son 
and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So very clearly in the teachings of Jesus, these are the teachings that Martha had heard, when will, be, when, will we be, when will we be raised up? In the last day, right? When we put our faith in Jesus. But Jesus was going to perform a special miracle for Lazarus, and so he says to the people that are there on the, at the graveside, he says, take away the stone. Verse 39, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And yet Jesus was going to perform a special miracle. And they take away the stone, and the Bible says in verse 43, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible tells us that Lazarus came forth alive and well. Jesus rose him from the grave by a miracle, by his voice, the very same way that he's going to raise up everyone that has believed in him when he comes back the second time. My friends, it is the voice of Jesus that brought this world into existence, amen? It was the voice of Jesus that created this world, and it's the voice of Jesus that can recreate you and me even when we have died. So when we are asleep in the grave, the life-giving words of Jesus can cause us to rise. Amen? And we will rise if we put our faith in Jesus. I like to think of it this way. If I'm listening to the voice of Jesus today, I will listen to his voice even when I'm in the grave. Amen? Those that have discerned his voice when they are living will discern his voice when they die because this is the word of life. This is the voice of Jesus. Amen? Accustom yourself with the voice of Jesus, and even if you would die before he comes again, you will hear that voice, and you will rise just as Lazarus rose from the grave. Now, I want, to think us about, I want you to think about a couple of things in this story, because this story reveals, when you think about it, really the ridiculous claims that a large portion of Christianity has today regarding what happens when a person dies. A lot of Christianity says today, when a person dies, they go straight to heaven or straight to hell. Now, if Lazarus died and went straight to heaven, then what Jesus did right here was not really a nice thing to do. Can you imagine Lazarus enjoying the golden cities of New Jerusalem? I mean, he is walking there with Gabriel, the angel, and Gabriel is showing him around. He's eating the best food he has ever eaten in his life. He is, he is seeing the most beautiful scenes that he has ever seen possible. I mean, the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the mind of man the very things that the Lord has prepared for them. Can you imagine what he is experiencing there? And he's experiencing the beauties of heaven, and suddenly he hears the voice, Lazarus, come forth. If I was Lazarus, I would say, I'm doing fine up here. I don't want to come. Just give them my greetings. Lazarus, my friends, was not in heaven. Neither was Lazarus in hell. Lazarus was in the grave in a state of unconsciousness. Right? When a person dies, they are unconscious. There's no love. There's no hatred. There's no feeling. There's, there's an unconscious state. And so for Lazarus, when he died, there was nothing going on during those four days. And if there was, can't you imagine that every single media, uh, you know, every single CNN and Fox News and all of them would have been there when he came out? So what was it like? What was it like? And the microphone would be put to the mouth of Lazarus. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That would have been his answer. He would not have known. He didn't know. He, had, he wasn't... He, there's no report of Lazarus talking about the bliss of heaven that he experienced for those four days or the terror of hell. Nothing. My friends, it was an unconscious state and he rose because of a special miracle. And so every person that has died in the faith of Jesus, they are not floating around somewhere right now. They're not in heaven. They're not in hell. They are in the grave, an unconscious state. And when Christ comes back, if they have put their faith in Jesus, they will be raised to life. Now, then the question, of course, is, how has this theory 
of people going straight to heaven or straight to hell, of the immortality of the soul, how has it crept into Christianity today? Now, in order to do that, we need to go on a little journey. This is going to be a very short but powerful journey into history. And so buckle up your seats, and here we go. We push the rewind button, and we go all the way back in time, and we start in Egypt thousands of years ago. In Egypt, there was a belief of the immortality of the soul. In other words, when a person dies, they continue to live. This was founded in Egypt. This was a very strong teaching with the Egyptians. And they actually believed that when Pharaoh, their master, would die, their king, that he continued to exist. There was an afterlife. And so what they did, they believed that there were parts in Pharaoh that they referred to as the Ba and the Ra that continued to exist. And so they would take the body of Pharaoh, they would embalm him, put him in the pyramid with all his possessions because he would carry those possessions into the afterlife. Okay? And so this belief amongst the Egyptians was later passed down to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians believed in ancestor worship. The pagan uh, um, uh, nation of the Babylonians actually built entire temples dedicated to their ancestors that they would worship because they believed when a person dies, they continue to live, and so they would actually worship those that had gone before them. This teaching was then passed down from Babylon to the Medes and the Persians, which strongly also believed in the immortality of the soul. And so it went from the Egyptians to the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, and then it was passed down to the Greeks. Now, the Greeks were really um, strongly emphasizing this. If there was a nation in antiquity that strongly emphasized the immortality of the soul, mostly or most heavily it would be the Greek empire, the Greek the Greek the Greeks. And what they believed is simply the uh, teaching of, and this is kind of a complicated word, but I'll break it down for you in a moment, anthropological dualism. Now, anthropological comes from anthropology, which is a study of mankind, a study of the human being. And dualism is the idea that we are not one, but we're actually two, dualism, dualistic. And so what they believed is that when a person dies, what happens is the body is like a prison house, and inside of us there is a spirit, and the spirit is separate from the body, and the spirit continues to exist forever and ever because the spirit is immortal, the body is not immortal. So when the body dies, it's like the prison house is opened up, the spirit is released and continues to live forever and ever and ever. So this is anthropological dualism, which... Uh, the Greeks really perfected this teaching, and it is rooted, of course, in Greek philosophy, especially when you read the writings of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. They were heavily, heavily um, stooped into this idea of the immortality of the soul. Uh, very different, by the way, from the Hebrew mindset, because when you go to Scripture and you look at the Hebrew mindset, um, Judaism was very strong on the holisticness of mankind, body, mind, spirit, all it belonged together. You cannot separate one from the other. While the Greeks, they really separated them all. They compartmentalized these things. And here we find creeping in this idea uh, into the Christian church because the Romans passed it on to the, uh, sorry, the Greeks passed it on to the Romans because what happened, when Rome became a strong empire, they conquered Greek but historians will always tell you and remind you that even though Rome conquered Greece geographically, Greece conquered Rome philosophically. And so what Rome did in order to keep their empire united is they infused Greek philosophy all through the empire. And so Greek philosophy even got a, a, a kind of a boost in the Roman Empire that came after it. And so the Romans would just spread Greek philosophy all through their empire. This idea of anthropological dualism, the idea of the immortality of the soul. Now, as Christianity is growing and Christianity is getting bigger and more influential throughout the centuries in the Roman Empire, you will remember, and we've dealt with this in a former uh, presentation, there was an um, emperor by the name of Constantine that actually became a Christian. And I, and I do that with quote marks because it's questionable whether he became a Christian because of a real conversion or a political move, because what happened is he wanted to 
get his empire united, and there were so many Christians and so many pagans, and he said, okay, I'll become a Christian, but we'll just bring the pagan rites and the pagan traditions and the pagan way of thinking into Christianity, and we'll just merge it all together. And what came into Christianity in the days of Constantine was exactly the idea of the immortality of the soul. As a matter of fact, John Stott, which is a foremost uh, Anglican theologian, um, even though Anglicans believe in the immortality of the soul, he kind of studied this out for himself in Scripture, and he came to the following conclusion. So he's quite, you know, out-of-the-box thinker um, on this very point. And he says, It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal. For the immortality and therefore the indestructibility of the soul is a Greek, not a biblical concept. Very clear, um, uh, very clear observation uh, from Scripture here. Now, the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the soul, of the human soul, crept into the back door of the church. It was long held belief through all the pagan um, nations and cultures throughout the antiquity. And then it came into Christianity, not in the first century. If you look at first century Christianity and you read the scriptures, Paul, as we've looked at those passages, had a very different idea about this. And so this came in later centuries when there was this merge of paganism and Christianity. And it has ever since been kind of this legacy that Christianity has kept on to throughout the ages. And I believe if we want to be truly Christians that believe in Scripture, we need to remove the traditions, we need to remove the culture, we need to remove all of it and get back to what Jesus taught. Amen? You know, I heard this quote once. It says, you know, Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and it became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It moved to the United States and it became an enterprise. Where do we need to get back? <laughs> we need to get back, right? We need to remove all these barriers. We need to remove all this clutter and all these traditions that would have piled upon the Word of God. And we need to get back to the teachings of Jesus, amen? And Jesus teaches us what happens when a person dies. Jesus teaches us what's going to happen when Christ returns. And we cannot go by man's traditions, amen? We need the clear revelations of the Word of God. Because why? Because the devil is using this very teaching to deceive literally millions in our world today. There are things, and maybe you've heard about this, things like Mary apparitions, where so-called Mary the saint is appearing to people and giving messages about what's going to come upon this world. Now, Think about this. According to the biblical teaching of what happens when a person dies, where is Mary today? In the grave. She is sleeping. The death, right? The sleep death. There's no conscious form. There's no floating around. She's waiting in the grave. And as a matter of fact, these people that are sleeping in the, way, in the grave, if there's no sense of consciousness, there's no sense of time. So for them, the very next moment is the second coming, right? But they're not floating around some time right now. And so she's also in the grave waiting for that great day. And yet, there are these apparitions and Mary is so-called giving messages to the church and messages to people, and people having personal experiences like this, where they'll see their grandmother or their grandfather or a beloved friend suddenly appear to them late at night and giving them some message of hope. And they think, this is beautiful, this is wonderful, but my friends, we must look at what Scripture teaches. Because if Scripture teaches that the dead are in the grave and there's no conscious form, and they are sleeping, then who is it or what is it that is actually appearing? Well, take notice of this. Um, this is a book, and it's called The Thunder of Justice, which is a 400-page book that is really dedicated to these apparitions of the Virgin Mary. And on the very first pages, in the first chapter, it tells us about this one um, um, appearance of Mary and this message that she gives to the world. Listen to what it says. This is just from the very first pages of this book, The Thunder of Justice. It says... A chastisement worse than a flood is about to come upon this poor and perverted humanity. Fire will descend from heaven. And this will be the sign that the justice of God has as of now fixed the hour of his great manifestation. So according to Mary, what is the sign? Fire coming down from heaven. Now that's interesting. For those of you that were here in our last lecture, 
last Sunday, you remember that we looked at a prophecy in Revelation chapter 13, that, and we're not going to go into depth of that right now. You can get the handout. You can, you can go and listen to the message online. But it tells us that a beast would come up out of the earth, which had two horns like a lamb and would speak like a dragon, and he would exercise the authority of the first beast in his presence, which is really these deceptive powers of the last moments of earth's history, and it, they would cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast instead of worshiping Christ, whose deadly wound was healed, and look at what it says. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, isn't that fascinating? Prophecy tells us that deceptive powers will be at work to perform miracles and signs. One of those signs Scripture clearly reveals is that they will cause fire to come down from heaven. And then Mary appears, and Mary says that fire coming down from heaven is going to be a sign of God. Now, my friends, what must we believe? We must believe this book, amen? We must go by the word of God and not be deceived by these apparitions or by these appearances of people which are actually not the very ones that, we, that many expect them to be or think them to be because Mary is in the grave. And also, loved ones that, that, that you hear these stories, and maybe you've even experienced this yourself, that you, know, you, hear, you hear about this person seeing their loved one appear to them and give messages to them. My friends, we must be very aware what this actually is. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The Bible tells us that the devil can transform himself into an angel of light. And by the way, that's not hard for him because that's who he originally was. When you look at the great controversy in Scripture, the devil, many times pictured as the little dragon with the pitchfork, the red dragon in charge of hell, the Scripture picture that is given of this being is an angel of light, Lucifer, the light bearer, and if he can appear as an angel of light, certainly he can take on the form of a beloved one that has passed away. He can take on the form of Mary or another saint. He can take on the form of a serpent like he did in the Garden of Eden. He can actually take on a different form in order to deceive people. And if people don't know the teaching of what happens when a person dies and they see their beloved one that looks exactly the same and speaks exactly the same and appears to give this beautiful message, what are they going to do? They're going to fall for it. And the only protection, my friends, from the floodgates of spiritism is this book, the teachings of the Bible. Amen? And so we must know what happens when a person dies. I heard this story of a, of a missionary family that went to a country, and I don't remember which country it was, but they lost their child as they were missionaries there. And their child was only very young, five, six years old. And they, and they were really, really devastated by what had happened. Very sad, as you can imagine, losing your child. At one point, though, the father recalls that he, he was outside working in the garden and suddenly he sees his son exactly running towards him, smiling, and it just seems as if everything is okay again. But he knew what the scriptures taught. And even though at that point it was everything in him wanted to embrace his son, he at the same time said, flee. He, 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 reminded, he reminded himself of the scripture uh, where it says, flee from, the, uh, flee from the devil. And he knew that Scripture taught what happens when a person dies. And so instead of embracing his son, he prayed a prayer to his Father in heaven, and he basically fled from the devil and, and cast himself upon God. And immediately, that apparition, that, that his son, which was not really his son, the apparition, it disappeared, it was gone. And my friends, we are living in a spiritual warfare. We're living in a spiritual warfare where, where this is happening to sincere people. If this has happened to you, by the way, don't think that there's something insincere in you. Why, you might question, well, why does this happen to me? Well, there are very sincere and God-fearing people in this book that have experienced things like that. 
But what we must know is the Scripture so we, that we can refute these lies in the name of God. Amen? Because Scripture is clear on what happens when a person dies. You see, the devil does not come up with a little card. I'm a false prophet. 666. That's not how it works. It's not deception like deception, the very word, is implying that it's something that we don't expect. It's something unaware. It's something subtle. That's exactly how the devil works. From the very beginning, he was subtle when he led the first human beings into sin. He is subtle when he's working today. And the the subtleness of the devil is specifically seen in the question of what happens when a person dies. Because what he's doing is he's even appearing as loved ones and appearing as saints in order to give messages to the world. And my friends, this will be one of the, some of the very last deceptions upon this world when he gives messages that people will embrace because they say, yeah, Mary told us. Or, or it, can you imagine if the devil impersonates Jesus himself and walks here on earth? They will say, oh, Jesus has come. And, and oh, my friends, we need to know this book. Amen? Jesus himself said, if, if, if you hear about, if you hear about, you know, um, if they say that he is uh, out there in the desert, do not go forth. In Matthew 24, he says, don't go, don't go out to see because I will come in the clouds of heaven. Jesus made it very clear that when he comes again, he's not going to step on this earth when he comes the second time. So anyone on this earth with their feet on this earth that says they are Jesus, you can know it's a hoax. Because in scripture, in, in, in the text we read in 1 Thessalonians, when Jesus returns, where are we going to meet him? In the air, in the air. So you know it's false, and we know that this deception will come, and that's why we need to know what Scripture teaches. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that's the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And I pray earnestly that none of us will fall into that category of allowing ourselves to be drawn away from the clear revelations of Scripture and to be deceived by doctrines of demons and doctrines of devils, which are very prevalent in our world today. And that's why I'm very adamant about this message, what happens when a person dies. We must know what Scripture teaches on this matter. And as we come to a close here, we must remember that Jesus has given us the promise that all of us that believe on him, that believe in his death and his resurrection, that he died in our place, that he took our sins to make it personal, that he took my sins, he took your sins upon himself, that assurance of knowing that our sins have been paid for and that Jesus trumped the grave when he rose up on that Sunday morning gives you and I confidence that we can trump the grave. Amen? That death is not the end, but that death will be swallowed up in victory. That's the language of Scripture. And it will happen when the last trumpet sounds and when Christ comes back the second time. We're going to close with this verse. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. But, I'm so happy for the second part of that verse, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray that that eternal life may be yours this evening. Remember that we're really on a journey, all of us. Because in this scripture, you know, this scripture is bookmarked. In the beginning, there is a garden that was created. It's called the Garden of Eden. And in the very end, in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, God, you know, makes this new earth again. And in the middle of the garden, in the beginning, he placed a tree, which is called the tree of life. You had the tree of knowledge of good and evil that they were not to eat of, but you had another another tree that they were to eat of, and that was the tree of life. It perpetuated their lives. It was life-giving. And so he placed it in the middle, the tree of life. When they sinned, they had to leave the garden. They left the tree of life. When you come to the end of the Bible, to the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation, God, he remakes this planet and he places right in the midst of it the tree of life. And so you and I are really journeying between the trees. We're between the two trees of life. And how do we get from one tree to the other tree? It's through the tree, the crucifixion of Jesus. Amen? Jesus hung on a tree to bring you from one tree to another, the tree of life. Amen? Your sins were upon him so he could give you, grant you, as a gift, eternal life. And that is a gift. And it's received by faith. And so put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in the one 
that bore your sins, that rose for you, and that is soon coming again for you. And don't believe in the lies of Satan regarding what happens when a person dies. Some people will say, and let me close on this one. Some people will say, well, what about the thief on the cross? Because, and that's the typical argument, because the thief on the cross, certainly, uh, you know, Jesus promised him that he would be in paradise with Jesus. Now, you've got to read carefully what Jesus actually said. You see, the thief on the cross said, you know, remember me when you come to, when you, when you come to the kingdom, right? And, and Jesus says, um, affirms that he will remember him and that he will be with him in paradise. And he says the word today, but it's interesting because in the Greek language, there are no commas. And so when you write in Greek, you basically just write without commas. And do you know that a comma can make a huge difference? I mean, where you place a comma can really make a huge difference. And what Jesus was saying is he was giving the promise that day. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today he gave the promise. He himself, Jesus himself, was not in paradise that day. As a matter of fact, Jesus was taken down from the, uh, from the cross, laid in the grave, and then on Sunday morning, he rose, the, the stone was rolled away, he came forth, and then some, someone met him right there. Mary Magdalene came. Remember the story? And she was about to touch Jesus. And what did Jesus tell Mary? Don't touch me because I have not ascended to the Father. Wow. So if he said to the thief, today you will be, in, be with me in paradise, if he meant that they were going to be there together that day, then that doesn't make sense with what he said on Sunday when he came forth from the grave. He said, I've not ascended to the Father yet, right? So it is all in the comma there. And by the way, if you just, if you just replace that comma, it makes perfect sense. Today I say unto you, you shall be with me in paradise. The promise was given that day. And my friends, if there are other scriptures that you think, well, I don't really understand this, feel free to ask me. Or also we have a handout tonight which will go through some of these maybe difficult scriptures, but we must look at the weight of evidence in Scripture, which really leans heavily towards what we have seen tonight, that yes, we rest in the grave. There is no conscious form of life after death. Immortality will be ours, but it's not ours yet, but it will be ours. It will be given to us at the second coming of Jesus Christ at the resurrection. And this teaching really, really protects you in many ways from the subtle attacks of the enemy. Because when you understand this, then you know that all those spiritualistic appearances are not beloved ones and they're not saints. The enemy is at work to deceive. Amen? And when we're aware of that, we will be able to also, by faith in the Word of God, be able to uh, protect ourselves and others from the subtleties of the enemy and give hope for that which is coming, which is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.